Well, good morning. <clears throat> I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you. My name is John Lee. I serve Mission Church as the lead pastor. I'm humbled and I'm honored to be with you this morning, especially as we continue on our journey through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. <clears throat> Excuse me. A journey that we've entitled God's Plan for God's People. Now, if you would, please grab your copy of God's Word, open it to Ephesians chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, um, we have some available for you out front in the resource table. Um, I'm not sure there may be some Ephesian journals as well available. Feel free to grab one of those at any point um, for you to follow along and take notes in. I find it absolutely mind-blowing and even encouraging to know that God has invited us to be a part of His plan for the world in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our, our brokenness, brokenness. God, He has made a way for broken sinners like you and like me to be reconciled to Himself and to be reconciled to one another. He's made us new creations. He has adopted us as sons and daughters. And now He is using us, the church, to transform the world for His glory. And today our text is a continuation of last week's exhortation from Paul. A few verses earlier, Paul instructed us to stop living like those who don't know Jesus. Instead, we are to live out the new identity Christ has given us when He saved us. And this morning, we're going to continue that exhortation and see five practical illustrations of what it looks like to live out the new life He has called us to. To to live no longer under the influence of our old deceitful desires that at one time defined us. Essentially, Paul is continuing to lay out for us a new pattern of living. In fact, I simply titled this morning's sermon, Living the New Life. If you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it it gives grace to those who hear. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath Shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we pray that You would soften our hearts and remove the calluses that have built up, whether it's from unbelief or unrepentant sin. I pray, Lord, that You would stir our affections away from the things of this world and, and place them upon Christ that we may know You more, that we would know ourselves and in light of that knowledge that we would have a greater understanding of the cross, a greater understanding of the Gospel. Lord, I pray that You would equip us today to, to love You more, to live like Christ and to lead, be able to lead others to You as You have called us to. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight. Lord, You are our rock and our Redeemer. and We need You. and Lord, we thank You for Your love and the grace and mercy that You've given us 
just simply to be able to, to know you, to be reconciled to one another, to be able to hear you speak through your word. Lord, we thank you and give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Please bear with me this morning. <clears throat> I'm uh, struggling a little bit with the cold this past week. And so, I'll cough and sniffle here and there. I'll try to cover the mic, but please, please bear with me. But authentic belief will always, authentic belief will always affect and determine how you live your life. And you really never know how much you believe something until what you believe becomes a matter of life and death. It's easy to look at a cord and believe that that cord is strong, especially if you're simply using that cord to tie your shoes or hold up your pants. But suppose you were to have to hang by that cord over a canyon. It's only then that you would discover how strong you really believe that cord to be. One of my favorite stories, it's a common story, you may have heard of it before, but it's a story of revealing authentic belief, and it's a story of a man named Charles Blondin. He was a French tightrope walker. On June 30th, 1859, so it's quite a while ago, he did his most famous act and he became the first person to cross the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. The tightrope was more than a quarter mile long. It was suspended 160 feet above the water and the rocks. And he walked across it several times, back and forth, back and forth, each time differently. He did it in wearing stilts. He did it riding a bicycle. He walked across blindfolded. He walked across with a wheelbarrow. And as you can imagine, as he did this amazing feat, the crowd began to gather. They began to ooh and awe and, and applause with every amazing feat that Blondin accomplished. We had an idea. He walked across with the wheelbarrow. He put a sack of potatoes in it. He made it across and people were cheering and they were excited. And then at one point he turned to the crowd and he says, do you believe that I can wheelbarrow across this tightrope with somebody sitting in the wheelbarrow? And the crowd goes wild. They're cheering and we believe you're the greatest tightrope walker ever. We believe that you can do it. He says, okay, who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? Crickets. Actually, people just began to like step back like, and turn around and leave until there was no one left. You see, they said they believed, but no one was willing to act out their belief. No one was willing to get into the wheel. No one was willing to get into the wheelbarrow to prove that they actually believed. And in the first three chapters of Ephesians, we spent time looking at deep ideas and truths and doctrines of God that Paul laid out for us. Details of what it is to believe God. And then as we've seen over the last few weeks, as soon as we hit chapter 4, Paul discusses how those truths of God about God are, how, are to influence our lives and how we are to pursue a life that lives like Jesus, that loves Jesus, that leads others to Jesus. See, what you believe will affect and determine how it is that you behave. And if you profess to believe what Paul has laid down for us in chapters 1-3, through then we will pursue a life that looks like what Paul describes in chapters 4-6. through If not, the question or the statement would be, do we really believe? See, if you're not pursuing a life of holiness, if you're not pursuing after a life of righteousness, then perhaps you don't know Christ as you think you do. 
But what we have to recognize as we go into chapters 4 through 6 are some pitfalls that lay before us. There's a danger that comes when studying these three chapters, which is thinking that somehow without Christ, without His work, without His righteousness, His perfect life, His death on the cross, without our salvation that comes through Christ alone, through faith alone, that we can somehow do what Paul instructs us to do on our own. That somehow we can be good enough. That somehow we can work our way up to God and be accepted by Him in our own power and our own strength. See, we can't separate doctrine and devotion. What differentiates Christ and Christianity from every other religion is that everything else, every, every other system points us to a path in which we work our way to God and work our way up to God to be acceptable in His sight. But Christianity is God working towards us and doing the very work for us in which we could never have done for ourselves. Another danger is that we could begin with grace. We could begin with what Paul describes to us in the first three chapters. We, we can believe and declare that we have not saved ourselves. However, we, we begin with grace, but then we live as though that we sustain our salvation, as though it's up to us to keep God smiling, as though we are sustained by our works and our behavior. But Paul, he addresses this pitfall in Galatians chapter 3, where he asks the church in Galatia, he says, Who tricked you? Who fooled you into believing that somehow this life of following Jesus is up to you and your own strength and your own ability? So when we talk about living the new life and this new pattern in which we are to pursue a life of holiness and righteousness, when we discuss as we did last Sunday, the taking off of our old self and the putting on of our new, we must qualify that we don't behave in this way out of our own goodness or our own capacity because we can't. But we pursue a life of holiness and a life of righteousness because Jesus has saved us. Because He has equipped us. He's empowered us. He has made us new creation. He has given us His Spirit. In other words, because the grace of God has renewed us and is empowering us, we should live as those who have been renewed by His grace. See, the Gospel, it makes us right with God. And God plants within our lives the life of God. You see, not only do we live our lives in Christ, but God in Christ lives in us. Consider 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 4, which says, This is how we know that we know him if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his command is a liar and the truth is not in him. So rather than dismissing the notion of, of duty and demand, the gospel of God's extravagant grace provides both an understanding of Christ's love for us. And the call to pursue holiness. In our text this morning, Paul specifically calls us to live like Christ and and specifically in how we speak and how we think and how we act. And he does so by providing for us five motivations in our text. Five motivations for living the new life. Beginning with number one, we are motivated to live the new life by the fact that we are members of one another. We are members of one another. Look at verse 25. Therefore, or because you have been given the new life, because you are in Christ, you should now be putting away lying. Speak the truth. 
each one to his neighbor because we are members of one another. Paul says, as you pursue a life that looks like Jesus, stop lying. Now understand Paul's words were extremely relevant to the culture in which this Ephesian church um, were in the midst of. See, lying was like second nature to the Greek culture. And as people were saved and as people were joining the church, the practice of lying began to creep into the church. And Paul, well, he wasn't having it. And he says, look, this is not going to continue. This is not a description or a characteristic of the new life that you have in Christ. And he even regards lying as the, the dominant characteristic of the old life apart from Christ. Consider Colossians 3. Chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. This is a parallel passage to our passage this morning. But he says, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. That reminds us of what we discussed last Sunday. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. In other words, there's no room for falsehood, there's no room for lying in the church. Let's be honest, this message is no less needed today as it was in Paul's day. For we too are immersed in a culture that oozes with deception and falsehood. I heard a story about a baker who suspected that the farmer who was supplying his butter was was shorting him on the weight of the butter. His suspicions were confirmed week after week as he weighed the butter and it was short every time. And so extremely upset, he calls the police and has him arrested. But the judge threw out the case. For when he questioned the farmer, the farmer explained, I have no scales. And he says, well, how are you weighing out the butter that you're giving to the baker? He says, well, I bought a pound of bread from the baker and I've been using that as my counterbalance. You see, deception is the water our social media culture swims in. We live in a time and space when we care more about what everybody thinks of us that we represent a false picture of who we are. Something or someone who is way more impressive than we truly are. Falsehood is the air we breathe. We, see, uh, we, can, we can't see an advertisement or a commercial without being lied to. This last week I saw a commercial that claimed that if I used this brand of toothpaste, my teeth would glisten with animal magnetism. I saw another one that promised that if I drink this sports drink, I would have the athletic ability of the football star who was promoting said drink. And I know that that's not true. We're entertained by lying as the most popular TV shows over the last 20 years are TV shows like Big Brother or Survivor that are built upon lying and deception. You see, whether it's Main Street, Wall Street, Hollywood, or even Pennsylvania Avenue, our culture is in an ethical crisis of lies and deception. But as Christians, and as the church, we are to look different. We must remember that we have been united to Christ in His death and in His resurrection. And we have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. We are no longer under the authority of the father of lies, the devil. But rather, we have been brought into the kingdom of light and love. And our King is Jesus, the truth. And so as new creations in Christ, we are to be speaking, as we discussed last week, we are to be speaking to one another the truth and love. And one of the hallmark characteristics, Christians, of your new life in Christ is truth. Why? Why? What is it that motivates us to put away falsehood 
and to put on truth-telling. Look back at verse 25. Paul says, the motivation for this is because we are members of one body. Now, I don't know about you, but Paul's motivation surprises me here in the text. I was expecting him to say, don't lie because God hates lying. Or don't lie because Jesus Christ is the truth. Both of which, those statements are true. But Paul says, hey, don't lie because you are all members of the same body. And lies among the members actually render the body of Christ dysfunctional. Consider what would happen if my eye did not communicate to my hand that the stove is hot. Well, I burn my hand. The body can't perform its function if members are not communicating truthfully to one another. In the same way, our words or lack of words affect the ability for the church to function as it should. When trust disappears, what happens in the church is a culture of suspicion. And the work of the church comes to a screeching halt when that takes place until trust is restored. This can happen in in the members. This can happen in the leadership. Fortunately, many uh, sitting here this morning have experienced that in the past. Churches in which truth was not a defining characteristic. And Paul's instructing to us, as you pursue this life of following Jesus, as you pursue to faithfully live out the mission that God has given you to make disciples, as you are faithfully to live as the church to reflect the glory of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you are to be defined by truth and love. Truth absent of love is harsh. It's rigid. Love absent of truth is spineless. They have to go together. We cannot separate them. Truth in love should define us. Not only as Christians, but as the church. See, we have to consider the nature of the church to kind of understand the, the weight of this motivation. The church is the body of Christ in which the Holy Spirit dwells and through whom God plans to fill the earth with His transforming power. And so it's imperative that our words and our integrity match the message that we are proclaiming. We cannot have a culture that is different from the message that we preach. It's confusing. Our culture and our message must match. Gospel culture. Gospel message. See, the Gospel of grace should compel us to pursue a life of holiness. Compel us to pursue a life of righteousness. Compel us to live like Jesus. If we choose not to pursue a life of holiness individually or collectively as a church, if we choose to pursue a life that is not full of truth and love, well, it is replaced by hypocrisy. And unfortunately, that's what the world knows the church for more than for the truth and love. And you see, the spread of the Gospel is then hindered. So we are to speak the truth to each other. We are to stop lying because we are members of the same body. And so Mission Church, let's be a church that is known for speaking the truth in love. Being honest. So therefore, our message and our witness is not hindered in this city. And so that as we proclaim the message of the Gospel, our culture matches. And people aren't confused. Sound good? All right. Motivation number two to living this new life is that we don't want to provide Satan with opportunities. 
Look back at Ephesians 4, verse 26. We don't want to give Satan opportunities. It says, be angry and do not sin. Now, some of you might read this and think, this is awesome. This sounds like I have the, I've been given a command to be angry. Awesome. I've got this covered. No problem. We're getting somewhere today. Especially on my commute to work in the morning. But understand that this is not what Paul is, is necessarily saying here. Paul's not permitting us to, to anger or commanding us to have anger that is self-defensive or out of control. Paul is not giving us permission to throw a fit or to seek revenge or to dishonor the name of God. But still, you might be surprised to hear that the Bible allows a particular type of anger. Paul's pointing to what is often referred to as righteous indignation or righteous anger, a term that is often misused. I, oft, I once heard a man say that my, his anger is righteous because in that moment he did not curse and he did not punch a hole in the wall. But that's not exactly what righteous anger or righteous indignation means. Righteous anger is a holy anger against sin. You see, as we pursue a life that lives like Jesus, we will share in Christ's anger and grief over sin. We will share in His grief at what sin has done to His good creation. And when we see things and observe things in our, in our culture, in our society, things like abortion or the sexual exploitation of women and children, the arrogance of power and wealth, every kind of injustice, we have a God-given right to be angry. In fact, as Christians, something is wrong when we live our life indifferent to the trampling of God's truth in society and in the church. We should hate sin in the same way that God hates sin. I'm reminded of what King David said in Psalm 119, verse 53. David says, Fury seizes me because of the wicked who reject your instruction. I'm also reminded of how the Gospel writers provide us with two striking examples of Jesus' righteous anger. In John chapter 2, we read of Jesus entering the temple and seeing people buying and selling. The scene so upsets Christ that He makes a whip out of cords and He goes into the temple and drives them all out. Later in response to the religious leaders that were questioning Him for healing someone on the Sabbath, Jesus looked at them in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, says that he looked at them with anger and he was grieved at the hardness of their heart. See, Jesus, he displayed an anger that was righteous. It was mingled with grief. And in this anger that Jesus expressed, he did not sin. It was unblemished. And as we pursue this new life, we are to take off an unrighteous anger. And we are to put on a righteous anger that does not sin, but is grieved by sin. The question is, how do we keep our anger holy? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 26. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. In other words, don't let your anger fester. It's not a crock pot in which you put your anger in and you let it stew all day. It's not going to taste better at the end of the day. It's going to be worse. Don't let it stew, but rather seek to resolve your anger as quickly as you possibly can. If it's righteous anger and you're grieved over sin, go to the Lord, for He is sovereign and He is good. Go to the Lord in prayer. Rest in His goodness. Rest in the fact that He is in control. Rest in the fact that He is sovereign over all. 
Even righteous anger can lead to problems like bitterness and arrogance. So the time to be angry is short. Why are we to seek forgiveness and restoration so quickly and reconciliation so quickly? Well, I once heard someone say, don't go to bed with unresolved conflict or you go to the bed, you go to bed with the devil. In other words, anger spoils us. I'm reminded of whenever we have leftover spaghetti and we put it in the Tupperware container and that Tupperware container is, is ruined because the spaghetti sauce ruins the container. The acidity from the, the tomato eats away at the Tupperware and in the same way, anger stored inside us spoils us, ruins us. Just stick with this, this, uh, this analogy. It's helpful. <laughs> the consequences un, of unresolved anger is what gives Satan a foothold, according to the text. You see, the more that anger stews in us, Satan has a foothold for his corrosive work in our hearts. One of the ways that the devil maneuvers himself into the life of the church is in when Christians allow righteous anger to breed a resentful spirit. Righteous anger can breed an arrogant spirit, a resentful spirit. Or when they nurse unrighteous anger so that it becomes uh, yeah, an arrogant spirit where we're better than, than you because we're upset over these things. Righteous anger breeds this, this resentful spirit towards people because I'm just so angry, I don't want to be around you. It's just this... this bitterness and it's gross. Both of these scenarios give the devil an opportunity to sow discord and and disunity and division amongst the members of the body. And so what do we do? Well, like I said, we go to God in prayer. We repent of unrighteous anger and with our righteous anger, we trust in the sovereign God who is in control of all things. So we are motivated to live the new life by the fact that we are members of one another We don't want to provide Satan with opportunities. And number three, we want to have something to share. Now, understand, each one of these taking off and putting on that Paul is telling us to, we could spend a a day, a sermon on each one of these things. And so if there's questions after this, we can work on that further. But for the sake of how Paul has this laid out in our text, we're moving through them rather quickly. But number three, we we want to have something to share. Verse 28 says, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. Paul continues to address the need for Christians to live differently. Your life should look different from, the, from those who don't know Christ. And this community should look different from any other community that does not know Christ and in which the Spirit is not moving. You see, we are to live according to God's law and the Eighth Commandment instructs us that we're not to steal, but rather, what are we to do? We are to put in an honest day's work and we are to share with those who are in need. Work, whether you believe it or not, is a gift from God. And Paul's reminding us that we were created to work. We, there is a need for us to, to work and the Bible all throughout points us to this requirements, this need for honest work. I'm reminded of 2 Thessalonians where Paul, he says, if anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there is some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. Now, these words are directed, understand, these words are directed towards those who want to work, but for whatever reason, 
choose not to. They're able, they're capable, but for whatever reason they choose not to. And they expect that their needs will be provided by others. In other words, if you want food and you have the ability to put in an honest day's work, you should work. And as Christians, we should be intentional about helping out a brother or sister who is in need. If they have a need to find work, we are to come together and help them find work. If they have no ability to work for whatever reason, then we are to come together and help provide for their needs. Look back at verse 28. We work not just so that we can eat, but so that we have something to share with anyone who is in need. What's amazing is this. When you give from your gain rather than taking for your gain, you are such a reflection of Jesus that you're actually sharing Christ in that moment when you share with those who are in need. Jesus said this in Matthew 25. He says, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And Paul's motivation for living this new life, for replacing stealing with working and giving is far more important than you or I could possibly imagine. There's so much weight that comes with this command. There's a generosity of spirit. There's a concern for mercy. There's a a willingness to live sacrificially, which are all a reflection of the grace of Christ as though Christ Himself is speaking through us and living through us when we leave live this out. How amazing is this? That despite your weaknesses, despite your sin, when you live selflessly, when you live generously, you are a reflection of Jesus to your neighbors. Brothers and sisters, take a moment and consider this. That by replacing stealing with working and giving, and we can go into details of how that plays out in our lives, but through your obedience to live generously and selflessly, You can be a reflection of Christ to the world around you. Where can you live this principle out more fully in your life? What can you commit to this week to living like Christ in this way? So, we are motivated to live the new life by the fact that we are members of one another. We don't want to provide Satan with opportunities. We want to have something to share. And number four, we want to be conduits of God's grace. We want to be conduits of God's grace. Ephesians 4, verse 29. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. The word that Paul uses here is extremely descriptive. When he says foul language, some of your translations may say corrupt language. He's speaking about a language that has been corrupted. This word in its original context literally means rotten, decayed, and this could include obscene language, foul language, but the emphasis on, in this text is on a conversation that spreads like decay. A gossip-like conversation that runs other people down. That finds delight in other people's weaknesses in order to make yourself look better in some instances. You see, our mouth and our words, as James says, he, it can be used for good or it can be they could be used for evil. And Paul says as you pursue this new life in Christ, not only are you to stop lying, but you're also to stop using your mouth as an instrument to tear people down, to break people down. Instead, we are to use words that build people up, that encourage people, that point people to the truth of Christ. St. Augustine, in recognition of this principle, he hung a plaque in his dining room wall which says this, He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. 
We have adopted this in our home. And I tell my kids this, as we're sitting around the dinner table talking about our day, I say, before you say anything about anybody, you need to ask yourself three things. Is what I'm about to say kind? Is it necessary? And is it true? I know this sounds elementary, but I think that even as adults, we need to run through those questions before we speak of other people. Is what I'm about to say about this person kind? Is it necessary? Is it necessary for me to be talking about this right now? And is what I'm about to say true? This sounds elementary, like I said, but every one we speak about is, or talk about is made in the image of God and deserves respect. And these three questions can help us govern our speech, govern our communication. And that includes, ladies and gentlemen, it does include our communication online, our social media communication. Before you say anything about anybody, ask, is it kind? Is it necessary? Is it true? Sam Crabtree, he wrote a book about practicing affirmation in the church. And he says this, we can sin in two ways. By idolatrous commendation, the praise of men. So saying something about someone that is good, but it's not true. False accommodation. Or by failing to commend the commendable. Brothers and sisters, as we pursue a life that lives like Christ, as we work to be conduits of God's grace, we need to be intentional. We need to make the choice to take off our old cynical and critical disposition. One in which I think is like a comfortable shirt that we normally wear as just people living in the culture that we live in. But we have to be intentional to remove that cynical and critical disposition and to put on the loving and truthful and encouraging disposition of Christ. And when we do that, we will ultimately be conduits of God's grace to one another. So we're motivated to live this new life by the fact that we are members of one another. We don't want to provide Satan with opportunities. We want to have something to share. We want to be conduits of God's grace. And number five, we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 30. You guys doing okay? This is very heavily imperative. This is what we do. That's why we want to root it so heavily in what God has done for us in the beginning. But I want to make sure that you're still with me. Alright. Don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You are sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Understand folks, the Holy Spirit is not a phantom. The Holy Spirit is not a force but He's a person. In fact, He is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. And Paul says, look, all of these attitudes and all of these actions that used to define you before you met Christ, when you choose not to put them away, when you choose to continue to wear the old self despite you have been made a new creation, well, you grieve the Holy Spirit. You sadden the Holy Spirit. Now this makes... This is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But Paul is pointing us to the fact that our actions have the ability to sadden the Holy Spirit. And this makes more sense when we consider what it is that the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit is the one who is 
revealing to us the truth of the Gospel. He's the one who softens our hearts and and opens our understanding to know the truth of God's Word. He is the one who has revealed to us the amazing and extravagant love of Christ. The Holy Spirit builds up the church. The Holy Spirit is the one sanctifying us. He is the one who is changing our desires, who are making us more like Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who is keeping us until the day in which Christ returns. And the Holy Spirit is the one who unifies and builds up the church. So when you consider the sins that we just walked through in Paul's exhortation here, the sin of lying and the sin of greed and and grudge holding and stealing and slander, it makes sense because all of these sins are in direct opposition to what it is that the Holy Spirit does. All of these sins destroy the unity and the witness of the church. And they're in direct contradiction of what the, what the Holy Spirit is doing in us and in the church. Therefore, anything that is inconsistent with the Spirit's nature naturally grieves Him. The truth is, I don't think there's a genuine Christian who wants to grieve the Holy Spirit. And this idea that the same Spirit who convicts my heart of sin, this same Spirit that regenerates or generates in me the love for God, gives me new birth, seals my redemption until the coming of Christ. The reality that the same Spirit who lives in me, who, who so intimately and perfectly loves me that I can cause to grieve, well, that's a great motivator to live the new life in which God has called us to. See, verse 30 teaches us that there's more going on that meets the eye in the life of the local church and how we interact with one another and how we care for one another, how we speak to one another. There's so much more going on in this than just simply telling the truth and stop lying, but there's so much more below this surface. In fact, that these sins is what grieves the Holy Spirit. That we should be pursuing unity in the church. Verse 31 the Spirit, um, well, Paul, he lays out for us kind of a last exhortation of kind of a summary of what he's talked about. He says, Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. See, as we pursue a life that lives like Christ, in a church that faithfully reflects the gospel, We are to remove from our relationships, we are to remove from our faith community any bitterness, any unforgiveness. We are to eradicate every resentful attitude, any anger that is festering in your soul. We are to refrain from indignant outbursts and abusive language and gossip, and we should not be defined as hostile. Mission Church, we should not be defined as hostile. How then should we be defined? Look at verse 32. He says, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Mission Church, we should be a people that is known for a kindness and a forgiveness that reflects the depths of God's kindness and forgiveness that He has shown to us. Consider Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says, or do you despise the riches of His kindness, restraint, and patience? not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God in His kindness, brothers and sisters, did not destroy you in your sin. But rather, in His kindness, He led you to repentance and faith in Him. Consider what Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, verses 4-5. through 
when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not by the works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, God is kind. And He is forgiving. And we are called to imitate Him. And the truth is, when we stop and think about the measures to which Christ went through in order to forgive us, then there is absolutely nothing, nothing that can be done to us that we should not forgive or cannot forgive. To, for, to not forgive means that we don't fully understand the depths of which Christ went through to forgive us. That we don't fully understand the Gospel. We don't understand Christ's forgiveness. Now that does not mean, listen, that does not mean that there should not be consequences for actions. But it does mean that we should be a people that is defined by radical forgiveness. And the way that we can move in that direction I believe, is to be a church, to be a people that meditate daily upon God's kindness, upon the Gospel, upon His love and His forgiveness. To keep that at the forefront of everything that we do. And if we do, I promise it will change us. It will make us more like Him individually and collectively as a church. It will make us a brighter Gospel light mission church in this city of darkness. So tell me, do you know Christ? Have you come to know Christ? If so, are you dressed in His righteousness and holiness? If not, this morning, pause. Take some time and allow His kindness to lead you to repentance. Repent and rest in His grace. And then together, let's pursue this new life. Let's live out this new life we have in Christ for our good, for the good of Mission Church, for the good of Las Vegas, and for the glory of God. Let's do this together. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your instructions that You've given to us this morning. I pray, God, that in Your kindness, for those here this morning who don't know You, would You convict them of sin, lead them to repentance, and trust in You that they would find their ultimate joy in You. For those here this morning that know You, I pray, Lord, that that You would also in Your kindness lead us to repentance and point to areas in our life in which we have been living in a way that does not match up with the instruction that You've given us. Lord, we thank You that our salvation is not dependent on us getting our act together, but in Your grace that You are empowering us and equipping us to do so. And we look forward to that day, God, that You describe in 1 John that day when we stand before You and we'll be as You are. In the meantime, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy to lead us to repentance and faith and to grow us in our likeness of Christ. We pray, Lord, that Mission Church would be a church defined by the Gospel. That that we would be defined by truth and love. That we would not be confusing to the city in which we live. That we would see this church and ultimately see You. Lord, we love You. We thank You. We give You all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.